Well, Adam, this marks my 40th year in a row of not knowing why a Blade Runner is called a Blade Runner. A Blade Runner is a bounty hunter who tracks down and retires replicants in the Ridley Scott film of the same name. Yeah, I know what they do. I don't know how they get Blade Runner out of that. Well, we'll answer that and all your questions today on the show. Really? Hell no. This movie brings up way too many questions. But we'll answer as many as we can, because it's a new Ford Fiesta! I'm Adam, I can imagine quite a wit. And I'm Paul Priston. And if you followed or listened to the movie guys at all over the last 13 years or so, we've been doing pretty much this. And we brought someone along to do it with us this time. He spoke up early that this is the Harrison Ford movie he wanted to talk about. He's an old friend of ours, so we're happy to say Dave Sachs is joining us. You know, we have some fun names at the top of every show, but the guest never gets one. Can we give Dave Sachs a fun name? Dave Sachs 2049? That'll do. Look, there's so much to talk about with 1982's Blade Runner, from the behind-the-scenes disagreements, to the multiple versions, to the legendary imagery and iconic sci-fi. We should get right to it. But who would we be if we didn't do our recurring segments? Most podcasts, you know, don't have recurring segments. We do. Well, there's got to be an extra charge for that. No, Adam, the show is still free. That makes me today years old when I found out I'm not getting paid to do this. Well, don't dwell on that, Adam. Instead, let's get to... What's new in the world of Harrison Ford? Let's talk about it because there's always something going on. And sure enough, he went to the Moving Target Awards in London. Well, he didn't go there. He sent a video tribute because Vic Armstrong received one of these awards. Vic Armstrong, of course, the legendary stuntman from Raiders of the Lost Ark. We talked about him last week and, you know, went on to have this incredible career since Raiders, moved into directing, and he's just a great uh, member of the Harrison Ford-verse. Armstrong has 123 stunt credits on IMDb, and Ford sent this tribute video for him and said, We've been doing this, Vic, for like 50 years. You've had the good sense to turn it into a directing job because this running, jumping, and falling down thing is a game for the young guys. It's been a great pleasure working with you, sir. That's awesome. I think that's the first stuntman we knew the name of because they would do the PBS special where they showed the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was only, you could only find out how three movies were made. It was like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, and Superman the movie at that time. So yeah, Vic Armstrong. Yeah, there's a whole sequence in there, how they did that. You know, so even as a young little kids, like we've always known how that sequence was done. It's just so cool. And I didn't write this down, but I remember when I looked up the article about the moving target awards in London, I think there was also some kind of tribute to John McTiernan. So uh, do you know what his fall from grace was? Because I forgot. What did he do? I bet the details are are numerous on this, but uh, it was a wiretapping scandal. There was some guy going around Hollywood trying to say, hey, you can get intel on other people or offering intel and like sucked some people into a wiretapping scheme. And then once they got caught for one of those, they realized they'd been doing this for various people. I think Gary Shandling was in that trial. Mm. Yeah, so that was it for wiretapping, uh, some sort of the, the wiretapping scandal, which I don't have a whole lot of details about. But yeah, did some well, jail time. I guess time heals all wounds because McTiernan was honored at this thing. But I, I should have gotten all the uh, information on that. But uh, 
The point was Vic Armstrong, Harrison Ford. There you go. And speaking of people close to Harrison Ford, when doing press for Sandman, Indiana Jones 5 co-star Boyd Holbrook, who you may know as the villain in Logan, and he was just in Vengeance, he's, and I think he's, yeah, he's, like I said, he's on Sandman. He said of the new film, I can assure you that it's going to be badass. I got to see like half an hour of it when I went to LA and I saw Jim Mangold. You know, just look at his work. Ford versus Ferrari. It's going to be fast. It's going to be badass. And it's going to have heart. All of his films have this emotional beat in them. But we've got this grand scale of Indiana Jones. So, Boyd Holbrook, proud and happy to be where he is getting the chance to be in this movie. There's a new... Oh, Adam, you'll want to know this. There's a new line of Hasbro Indiana Jones figures coming out. So, you'll want to check out that. And they were old school. When I looked, it was Marion Sala, Tote. Uh, nice. Belloc and Indian, the arc itself. So yeah, I think like six inch figures and uh, yeah, it should be pretty cool. That's cool. And I, I think they emulate the original ones from 1980, you know, the same card backs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, much like Star Wars has been doing at the Star Wars fest that we went to. I bought a Boba Fett action figure from the book of Boba Fett, but it's, you know, it's designed all logo looks just like the old action figures. And it's the first action figure I bought and haven't opened because I just enjoy the presentation so much. <laughs> Yeah, I have a few of those. I'm thinking about busting them. I have an old, like, McFarlane Toys McKenzie Brothers set. Oh, that's And, cool. they're, they're, you know, now the box is yellowing, and so you can't even really enjoy it. I should just take them out of there and set them up somewhere. I know. Just the fact that there are McKenzie Brother toys that you can display, uh, they got you got to give them a little air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Googling Harrison Ford News always gets us something interesting, but nothing from Daily Mail this time. You know, I, I don't know if Ford's stayed indoors this week, but <laughs> there's a fun story out there about Harrison Ford giving grief to a guy running a marathon in an Indiana Jones outfit. Well, it turns out the guy's running these marathons to raise money because his son has muscular dystrophy. Oh. So Ford was giving him a gentle ribbing about how he looked. So he now is going to run as Chewbacca. <laughs> oh, things. and no that's surprise. A way Adam, hotter. That's a way hotter thing. That's what he said. He said, I'm Come doing on. this for my kid. He like was not because he looked wow. all sweaty and like a mess. I think that's why Ford goofed on him. But he knew the guy. He wasn't just goofing on some stranger. Why does he know the guy, Adam? Because he's in England and Ford was shooting there and the guy runs a bike shop. And that's what Ooh. we know. That's how you meet Harrison Ford. We found out. Paul, I think we need to start a bike shop. <laughs> you know, bring him in. That was fun to hear about. Uh, that and uh, one more quick recurring show segment before we get to the recap. This date in Ford history. History, history. October 3rd, 2017, Blade Runner 2049 opens. Uh, not a summer movie for him and not a really a summer movie. That's, that's a, this is a good time to be releasing a Blade Runner 2049. So that's cool. We're doing it virtually on the anniversary. No, we are doing it on the anniversary. Blade oh, yeah. Runner 2049. Actually, all three know? of these news stories took place on October 3rd in their various years. Oh, and, I was yeah. just thinking because I was looking up a lot of stuff on Blade Runner. Obviously, 2049 comes up sometimes when you search. Yeah. Even just a still of that movie in in a thumbnail is breathtaking. It's <laughs> like amazing. Roger Deakins outdid himself. He was like, enough. Like, give me an Oscar already. That film looks fantastic. And you just think of the risk of creating a legacy sequel and destroying something about the original. And I came to this realization when I saw E.T. in Washington, D.C. with a live orchestra. That was just like watching E.T. for the first time. And it occurred to me, me, as such a big fan of sequels and prequels and more, and give me 2,500 Marvel movies a year, all that sort of stuff. I was like, this movie is better because they never made a sequel. 
you know, we could go, oh, you can ignore it. It doesn't hurt the original, but aren't you so happy there's no sequel to E.T.? Uh, <laughs> yes. So, you know, Blade Runner, obviously a masterpiece on a, a whole different level, but you just wouldn't want to try and re-emulate it. And the fact that they did and they captured the same atmosphere and it looks maybe even better. <laughs> I was like, wow, OK, right. On. I mean, a dream, what a dream come true, you know? Yeah. Some of the shots in that are absolutely jaw dropping. So, yeah. yeah. And I saw it in the theater and I, and I feel bad for anyone who didn't. I kind of want to put a film fest together someday here where it's just stuff you should have seen in the theater. Yeah, that's what I'll call it. The stuff you should have seen in the theater film festival. Here's your chance again. Avatar was going to be in that, but now it's re-released, oh, yeah. obviously. Getting prepped for the sequel, but uh, you should, so you should go see that. But, you know, Ant-Man, you should see that in the theater. You know, Blade Runner 2049 should be seen in the theater. So put a Gray whole Man. film fest of those together. Great Man should, yeah. Some of, oh, that would be even better. It's true. film festival of stuff that should have been seen in the first place, you know, like should have got their time in the theater. What streaming movies need a theatrical release? Yeah, that entire Rings of Power. Oh, right. Uh, October 3rd, 1987, 30 years before Blade Runner 2017, Malcolm Ford is born on the release date, ultimately, of Blade Runner 2049. Uh, I guess that's the second son, right? I don't want to say he's the Eric Trump of the uh, <laughs> of the Ford family, but I certainly know a lot more about Ben, and we talked all about that last well, week. Well, I was also thinking about Ben, because we mentioned I listened to our show, and I was like, after what movie, you know, did Harrison Ford and his wife at the time conceive? Because we were like, like the reason his parents probably couldn't make it out to see, you know, Journey to Shiloh, I can't remember what it was, was because they had a newborn baby. But it's like, oh, w- was it after uh, Dead Heat on the Merry-Go-Round? They're like, congratulations, honey. Let's go have a kid. Like, I have a career now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. What movie is each baby's uh, conception? Paging Mr. Ellis is going to shoot me into a different money bracket. <laughs> Let's do this. So wait, so Malcolm Ford comes out in 87, so they probably conceived, what, uh, in 86 or earlier in 87. Either way, there's a little break in there. 87 yeah, is no a Harrison witness, Ford movie. It's a, yeah, because then Mosquito Coast 86, then nothing, then Frantic and Working Girl, both 88, so that he took a year off and had a kid. Yeah, and then in October... T- Third, 1999, Random Hearts, this is one of the ones that I've never seen, is released. 99. So that's in uh, Chicago. You're in Chicago still at that point, and we didn't go see this Harrison Ford movie together. Actually, I'm not. I just exited Chicago and started working on a cruise ship. I saw Random Hearts in the Bahamas. Oh, my God. (laughs) With Fight Club and a bunch of other sort of late 99 stuff for the first time. That was pretty cool. Had to leave the cruise ship, get on a little local bus, you know. And take it out to the middle of nowhere to a mall and go see a movie, you know, well away from the tourist area. So you were hitting local life in the Bahamas, but had to. Movies. So, yeah. yeah. Random Hearts is one of the ones I saw there. Oh, nothing can keep Paul away from movies. It was the funniest thing to see as for the first time in history, movies weren't shown in America. Paul was seeing movies. We all shut down, shut a whole quarantine. You go to movie theaters and you'd see the marquees frozen in time. Paul's out there finding movies. Pandemic, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I went to Oceanside Pandemic. to watch Tenet. I went to Utah to see Bill and Ted's Face the Music. Now, granted, I was coming back from Wyoming, but I was like, hey, before we get to California, they're showing movies in Utah. California was still shut down. Yeah. So I saw Bill and Ted Face the Music pretty much with one other guy in the theater, but it was just so big again. I was like, ah, movie. So. Yeah. Yeah. You find movies, dude. You are the movie guy. By the way, John McTiernan was charged in federal court with making false statement to an FBI investigator in February 2006 about his hiring of the private investigator Anthony Pelicano. That's a name you heard in the news a lot at that time. Pelicano. All these people that were hiring Pelicano. 
Pelicano, do we illegally wiretap producer Charles Roven, the producer of the film Rollerball, around August 2000? The whole thing is over him trying to find out what the producer of the remake of Rollerball was thinking and saying in his office privately. That's just so funny for that it all centers around that. Well, you know, Adam, there were making of struggles and different versions and all that, but let's get back to the point. What is Blade Runner all about? Hmm. We'll tell you with our patented Movie Guys recap. A fiery L.A. skyline, a close-up of an eyeball, a futuristic building. The opening shots of Blade Runner tell you everything you know about the murky future in which they take place. 2019? 2019. Oh, will this movie cover the first Trump impeachment and the U.S.-China trade war? Well, it does cover illegal immigration, as Harrison Ford, now comfortably in the position he'll be best at from here on out, leading man, plays a former police officer who has to enforce President Trump's dream policy of killing the immigrants. Enhance. Oh, and Trump isn't president. And I should also mention that the immigrants are bioengineered humanoids known as replicants, who are supposed to be working off-planet. But several of them have escaped and made their way back to Earth due to an open border between us and all of space. The replicants, Zora, Pris, Leon, and their leader, Roy Batty, are the most advanced replicants ever created. Superior strength, agility, brains, eyes, and on top of that, they are identical to humans, or in the words of their creator, more human than human. Roy Batty is their leader because he apparently is so advanced, he has a last name. <laughs> and that last name. They're dangerous. They've escaped to Earth, they're out in society, and only one man can find them and kill them. And that's exactly what this movie's about. Harrison Ford plays Rick Deckard. God, that's a great name. Han Solo, Indiana Jones, and Rick Deckard. Hmm. Deckard. Yeah, you're right. It is good to say. Deckard is a legendary Blade Runner. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-Blade Runner. Ex-killer. Is he the best of the best? Yes. Is he out of the life? Yes. Then do we have ourselves a movie? Yes. Deckard sniffs out replicants with the talent that Harrison Ford also employs on audience members, making us look deeply into his eyes. But in this test, eye responses in the person taking the test are measured to see if they are a replicant or not. It goes by the friendly name of the Voigtkampf test. <laughs> yes, in the Voigtkampf test, you are given a series of questions. You see a clown who's wearing Depends. You're staying at a Fort Wayne, Indiana Holiday Inn for a conference on bowling ball lacquer. You're watching the episode of Kung Fu with Dennis Hopper. You're babysitting and someone keeps calling to ask if you've checked the children. Your rental car for the trip to Chain of Lakes is neither young nor glamorous. And Harrison Ford is still breaking ground as one of his movies finally stars M. Emmett Walsh, yes. who plays... Well, does M. Emmett Walsh play anybody? In fact, this movie is a bit of a chef's salad of character actors, as M. Emmett Walsh tells Deckard about Brian James killing another Blade Runner during a Voight Kampf test! Monsieur has been <laughs> Anyway, he gives him the assignment to track down four Nexus 6 replicants and kill them. Mm -hmm. The Nexus 6 are the Tesla of replicants. Fast, sleek, invented by a maniac, and like Elon Musk, indistinguishable from a real personality. Deckard pays a visit to the inventor of the Nexus 6, Eldon Tyrell of the Tyrell Corporation. Deckard visits Tyrell the way he visits everyone in this movie. Slowly. 
and traveling by futuristic flying car, the Spinner, designed by Sid Mead and painstakingly shot by the recently deceased FX giant Douglas Trumbull. If you shot something as beautiful as the exteriors of 2019 Los Angeles in this movie, you'd be hesitant to cut away too. Especially when those hypnotic slow flybys are scored by Vangelis, the recently minted Oscar winner for Chariots of Fire, a piece of music that instantly conjures images of Clark Griswold and his family running to Wally World. I've never seen Chariots of Fire, and I don't plan to. Tyrell lives in a gigantic futuristic pyramid, a Douglas Trumbull shot that is so good, it's worshipped as a sacred text in some corners of the world. Tyrell the Futurist, the technologist, lives by natural light in an Egyptian-themed castle as the symbolism piles up like a... like a Ridley Scott movie. Tyrell also has Coke bottle glasses. We'll get into the symbolism of eyes later. Let's just say that perception is reality, and Ridley Scott's a little more European than George Lucas. Which raises the question, what is reality? We're introduced to Rachel, Tyrell's beautiful secretary, played by Sean Young of almost Raiders of the Lost Ark with Tom Selleck. Tyrell has brought Deckard, the best of the best at spotting replicants, to test him on a human subject. Deckard administers the Voigtkampf test. You're trying to explain the end of 2001 to an eight-week-old puppy. You finish mowing the lawn only to realize it's Art Garfunkel's lawn. You're in 1963 Greenwich Village. You're on in five, but you forgot your ukulele. You're writing a parody of I'm Too Sexy with Weird Al Yankovic. Your cast is Vicky Vale in Batman when you break your arm while training for the sequence where Vicky Vale rides a horse? You're the new head of Warner Brothers and you think Batgirl sucks. Deckard discovers that Rachel isn't human, and also that she doesn't know. It's the latest advancement by Tyrell, replicants with the advanced moral quandary 6000 engine that think they are human and look like Sean Young and have memories. It's sci-fi written by Nietzsche, because if our lives are just memories and memories can be implanted, then what is the difference between us and them? And if they're basically human, then how can you kill them? What the hell was happening to me? It's the exact same question that Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't raise. And if you think a meditation on what makes humans humans would make for a slow sci-fi movie, <laughs> you'd be right. But you don't go to the Sistine Chapel for the pizza. Ridley Scott's signature painstaking visual precision has never been more on display because he's young, he's hungry, and he hasn't had 10 years taken off his life by making Blade Runner yet. But quicker than a studio executive can say, uh, Ridley, what the hell am I looking at here? He plays three notes on a piano and summons a unicorn? It's time to do what they signed up for, detective cop stuff. Deckard searches the apartment of Leon, a replicant who killed a Blade Runner, and finds photos and in the bathroom a reptilian scale. Enhance. And then, after the exhilarating searching scene, Blade Runner slows it down a bit to... Enhance. Deckard's detective credibility. <laughs> Deckard views the photograph in a futuristic, but also not, piece of tech which allows you to infinitely... Enhance. A photograph. And once you... Enhance. This one, the replicant Zora can be seen in the background. Zora is a pleasure model, which means she helps men... Enhance. Their pleasure. Deckard finds Zora in a district that looked like a nightmare to shoot. How many extras, Ridley? I'm thinking 20? How about 600? And rain. Lots of rain on all those extras. Well, being a master detective, Deckard is also a master of disguise, pretending to be an agent to get close to her, ultimately shooting her down in the street. Ridley, can we just shoot her in the dressing room? I was thinking out on the rainy street with 600 extras in the rain, but maybe she runs through six panes of glass first, a winter-themed shop window, so maybe it's snowing too. Anyway, he shoots her in the back. While Deckard tracks down the four replicants, they're on the loose. 
Roy Batty, played incomparably by the already incomparable Rucker Hauer, and Leon are trying to get to Tyrell to turn off their limited lifespan, as the clock is ticking and Batty wants... I want more life, fucker. Hey, language! I want more life, father. They visit David Lopan from Big Trouble in Little China, creator of Their Eyes. There's that metaphor again. Adam, did you ever think that perception is reality? Hmm. Pris, meanwhile, locates the robot inventor and geneticist J.R. Sebastian, played by William Sanderson. Hi, I'm Larry. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl. Uh, the rich man's Tracy Walter. Pris's advanced replicant powers give her ten times the sexiness of a regular human Daryl Hannah. She manipulates Sebastian to gain his trust and entrance to his apartment full of creepy toys. Okay, yep. Room full of nightmares. Not going in there. Deckard has a difficult heart-to-heart telling Rachel that she's not human, and that he's attracted to robots. It's the 80s, so he forces himself on her, but ultimately it isn't a stretch to think that she's attracted to Harrison Ford. Later, following her into the street, he runs into the replicant Leon and gets his ass kicked by the Terminator-like strength and speed of the killer droid. He's ultimately saved by Rachel, who kills Leon with Deckard's gun. So the question of, is killing a replicant killing a human, gets a new layer to ponder while high at midnight at the village north in Chicago. Also, what if the color blue to him isn't the color blue to her? Anyway, Rachel and Deckard tend to each other's wounds and then each other's lips. Roy Batty uses J.R. Sebastian to gain access to Tyrell, who cannot give him more life. Sorry, life is death. And so Batty takes Tyrell's life from him. It's murdering by metaphor as Batty sticks his thumb into Tyrell's eyes further and further until he dies. Meanwhile, Deckard has followed Pris to Sebastian's apartment where he gets beat up some more. But he finds the courage to kill a replicant and takes Pris down with another iconic Harrison Ford prop. Then it's finally down to Deckard and Batty. Batty is the superior and more vicious fighter. Deckard is outmatched and even robbed of his pistol hand when Batty slowly and methodically breaks three of Deckard's fingers and then puts the gun back in his hand, which is a pretty boss villain move. But Batty's time on Earth is ticking down. He's dying, and being a Nexus 6, he has advanced powers of contemplation as he winds down with one of the great death scenes in cinema history and a speech that was entirely improvised. No, I'm totally kidding. I hate when people say that. (laughs) I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. (laughs) Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. But how that didn't become an Eric Clapton song, I'll never know. And so closes Blade Runner, but depending on what version you see, either Rachel and Deckard take a sunlight stroll through the woods that looks a lot like the opening helicopter shots of The Shining. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? Or Rachel and Deckard leave his apartment together after finding an origami unicorn left by Gaff and a vocal flashback of Gaff saying it's too bad she won't live, but who does? Which many seem to think means that the producer saw this and said, You're killing me, Ridley! What is this? 
But to the rest of us in the back of the Princess Theaters 4 with Dave Whitehouse, it meant that Deckard himself might be a replicant. All of us might be replicants. What is life? What is reality? How can podcasts be neither? I mean, uh, I can't know. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? And so the movie ends, never answering the question of whether androids dream of electric sheep. All right, and that's Blade Runner. Now... We'll recap Blade Runner, the work print. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. We've, we've All done right, done we're enough. done. We've That's done it. We're done, everybody. Blade Runner. Yes. That's Blade Runner. And now, our thoughts. Uh, we we are joined by a longtime friend of the Movie Guys who appeared on the Movie Guys Live, the old Toad Hop Network show, came down to Hollywood and appeared on that show. The Movie Showcast in my garage, he appeared in there, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, did you... Did he do a Movie Guys live show? One of our live shows? I was shows at the original, I can't remember. I believe. I was there with uh, Farley. I yeah. remember that yeah. for sure. Now he's on the Ford Fiesta. Apparently we got to get him on Movie Nonsense so he can complete all of our shows and be on all of them. Dave Sachs is here. Hey, Dave, Dave Sachs. Sachs is here. When, when, I think of, when I think of Blade Runner, I think of one person who absolutely adores Blade Runner. We have had some amazing Blade Runner conversations over the years. You know, you have certain people that you could talk certain movies with, and there was only one choice to come on. Oh, I am honored. This is great. I got to tell you, you know, it is my favorite movie of all time, so I'm certainly excited to dive into this. And it's uh, 40 years old this year. 1982 it came out. Oh, yeah, 82. Crazy. You would never know what to look at it. That movie, I'm telling you, you could take an 18-year-old right now and plop them into a movie theater and tell them that this movie was just released. And with the very few exceptions of a few models or cars or whatever, for the most part, looks like it just was released. It's fabulous. It's so great. Yeah, and it was released June 25th in 1,290 theaters. That's 1982. And Alan Ladd Jr. thought this was a lucky day because Star Wars was was released on a 25th, May 25th in uh, in 1977. And Alien was released on a 25th, May 25th in 1979. So they thought June 25th, that's when this is coming out. And of course, uh, it was not a huge hit. <laughs> <laughs> not the lucky day he thought he was going to get. I mean, I wonder if people were expecting... Another Star Wars, it is sci-fi, it is Harrison Ford, uh, you know, I mean, it, it can't help but be disappointing to somebody coming in the first time. We're watching this for the 20, 30th, 40th time. And there's a lot that they gave us because not only did we get the theatrical cut in 1982, but we got the director's cut in 1992, and we got oh. the final cut in 2007. Ironically, the final cut is the only one where Scott, Ridley Scott, director Ridley Scott, retained artistic control. Not on the director's cut, but on the final cut. <laughs> so how many times do you think you've seen this, Dave? Like, with Raiders of a Lost Ark, I've seen it at least 40 times. Because I see it every year, and it's been out 41 years. So, what right. do you think? Yeah, I don't, it's got to be, it's probably close to 20 or more. I don't know. It's, it could be two dozen. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's one of them that goes back. I saw it pretty shortly after it was released, at least for home viewing. Because it was, you know, must have been 1983 or 84 or something like that that I saw it over at a friend's house. I was completely blown away. So that I'd never seen anything like it. You know, I was a young kid, and I saw Star Wars, right, of course. Right. Uh, and I'd seen some sci-fi, but nothing with this kind of atmospherics, nothing that was this immersive. And I just thought it was the greatest. I had already liked sci-fi. 
But uh, I was just, I was so mesmerized by it. I thought it was such a great concept and great execution of a great concept. And nothing has ever done anything. I mean, this this is just, this movie is insane, okay? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> every single every single shot has a hundred layers of people and rain and neon lights. And th- I mean, it's just like, and, and I was calling it out while we were watching it a couple of times. I'm like, hey, uh, Ridley, you, you just want to, uh, like, two cars and stuff? Oh, yeah, two cars. Um, give, can I get, like, uh, 150 extras? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, let's get to a couple planes of uh, neon lights. How many? I'm thinking 60. I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> like, everything is just, like, oh, so thick. It's such a dense movie. Yeah. It- well, as beautiful it was to look at, Thirty million dollar budget. Now that's nineteen eighty two numbers, but still thirty million is is so it must it was well spent wherever the money went. Yeah, yeah, that's way up there though, right? Eighty two. That that sure. even Empire Strikes Back I thought went over budget at like seventeen or something. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what they thought was going to lure you in: the taglines, the star of Raiders of a Lost Ark and the director of Alien take you on a spectacular journey to the savage world. Of the year 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I had recently shown this to my nephew and my niece. And when that flash, when it starts out with Los Angeles 2019, they laughed out loud. <laughs> it really Because it's just like hellscape. Yeah. A dystopian future that happened a few years ago. <laughs> Man has made his match. Now it's his problem. Is your other tagline. Oh, my God. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I've had the... I think the pleasure to see this mostly in theaters. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, well, because I went to the director's cut. I went to the final cut. I went to the final cut twice, but I think I might've seen the original in the theater. I think my brother took me, you know, when I was very young. No way. You saw this in the theater. I, I that was totally so, like, yeah. not well, I mean, allowed. I was so high on Raiders. I didn't care what Harrison Ford did next. That's the thing. I'm begging you know? my parents to go see this Blade Runner. And they're like, no, 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 you can't go see that. That's adult movie. It was <laughs> such a, uh, that annoyed me so much. Oh, I was so mad. <laughs> Maybe it was my dad, but I think I did see it in the theater. So I think I'm like three times in the theater, only like twice at home viewing. So I'm lucking out to having a lot of theatrical experiences. Dave, did it. you see it in the theater? Do you say, uh, say that? Only as a re-release, you know, when they came yeah. out with it again, as Paul was describing. No, it completely uh, escaped me. When I was a kid, I wasn't too you know plugged into what the new releases were, things like that, unless it was something I, I really knew about. Uh, but this one, I don't even remember ever seeing a preview for it or knowing anything about it's it. Harrison Ford. He's a space cop. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I'm in. But my parents are like, no way. You can't. No, you're not going to see Blade Runner. That's not. But, you know, that tagline that Paul said, you know, that that gives maybe a little bit of an indication to why it might not have done well in the box office. I mean, they're setting it up that it's Raiders of the Lost Ark guy. And this isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark guy. I mean, this, no. is, this is, you know, this is deep, drunk uh, Humphrey Bogart, you know, <laughs> in uh, film noir, you know, yeah. stuck in that world. It, it's for adults, but not. Not necessarily in the way you think. It's for adults because adults can get into this sort of noir. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's boobs in it too, but it really is like an adult adventure in that it's really a throwback. So is it a risk for Ford? I mean, we're just getting into his uh, lead actor status. You know, he had been ensemble in Star Wars. He had been the lead in Hanover Street, but who's talking about that? So he comes out of Raiders, the big lead. He's the man. And now he, like, doesn't follow it up with the same thing. Well, I think that's why people expected a a big action movie. It's sci-fi. They're expecting Star Wars. It's, you know, Harrison Ford as space cop. So they're expecting some Indiana Jones. And they don't get 
any of that. I mean, what a thoroughly disappointing movie from the point of view of everybody <laughs> going to the theaters to see this for some reason. For sure. Like all the reasons to love this movie are not there on day one <laughs> in 1982. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. Like there's, there's nobody went in going, God, I hope this is a futuristic noir <laughs> dystopian, uh, <laughs> dystopian yeah. noir. God, I hope this is a dystopian noir. <laughs> I hope I see Han Solo as a bummed out, drunken, <laughs> <laughs> washed out. Yeah. Detective. You know those like, you know those classic characters, the classic washed up guy who can't d- do the job as a detective anymore and he's burned out. That, but in the future. Oh no 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 no. Not the future you're thinking of. <laughs> a really bummer of a future. <laughs> oh my god. You remember how heat was advertised in the theater. I remember there were people that were disappointed with no. Heat because the trailer for it, at least the initial one, made it seem like it was more, maybe not diehard, but it had a lot more action, right? It's Kilmer, it's a Pacino, oh, right. it's De Niro, and oh my God, look, they're shooting, there's bank robberies and everything. So yeah. every, you know, people went into that thinking that that was what that was, and it was this pensive, deep right. drama. And I think it just threw people for such a loop that they just couldn't get themselves out of the one mindset and into the one that the movie really needed and maybe Blade Runner was sort of similar in that regard I mean if they're billing it as I mean I know they had to say it but you know the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark but it really is such a departure for him I think Michael Mann takes more perverse joy in disappointing an audience than Ridley I think Ridley (laughs) the sad thing about Ridley is he always thinks like oh this is the one like they're gonna go oh when they see legend they're gonna go nuts and then they don't and you're like oh man you're like and he pours everything into you know he worked a couple 12 hour days you could tell i got the top gun guy and legend and everything still <laughs> uh so here's who was in consideration to play deckard okay. by the way fun fact never called rick oh the whole movie that's um, cool that's so noir it's all noir man it's like every deckard. little thing well listen you got uh the, the femme fatale you've got the questionable morals of your lead you've got the narration the dark photography it's all the checklist all has there. been checked yeah. oh, oh and, and then, then of course like when you get to his apartment and stuff you're like the venetian blinds everywhere you know like <laughs> it's got all noir stuff yeah so potentially uh, rick deckard or deckard could have been gene hackman sean, sean connery jack nicholson paul newman Clint Eastwood. These are all considered Tommy Lee Jones, Schwarzenegger. Uh, well, I mean, been, everybody puts in a bid at first, right? Yeah, <laughs> but that, that would have been pre-Terminator. Oh, that would have been. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pierre Falk? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. You know what? That's I, actually the first one you've said that makes sense based on the genre. Because he's detective. <laughs> yeah. You loved him in Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> now, you're saying that your, your, daughter, your niece is represented right now. Um, <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of nexus did you say? Ah, it's all goobity-goob to me. <laughs> I tell you, if you could see the things that I see with your, with your eyes, <laughs> you'd see that uh, you left a, a origami behind, if I'm not mistaken there. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pacino, Burt Reynolds... Oh, oh, eighty-two, Burt Reynolds, Sharky's Machine. It's around that time. But Can you two? imagine Ridley Scott seeing eye to eye with Burt Reynolds on anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good call. Uh, but the two went furthest. Dustin Hoffman went the furthest in the talks, and they broke down. Hmm. Really? And Martin Sheen turned it down. I guess if you need narration, you go with the best. Yeah, right. right? So. Oh. <laughs> 
you know, Which a lot of those I would love to see. I would have loved to see. I mean, maybe not the Peter Falk, but, you know, still, I, I think everybody could have done an interesting I'd job. I'd watch Straight that. Times Dustin Hoffman in this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that all sounds good. Paul Newman. A few years before Color of Money, so he'd be a little haggard, you know, a little the yeah. haggard cop that well, you 80, need him 82, to be. 82, isn't that slap shot year, uh, Paul yeah, Newman? Yeah, it's near the verdict, too, right? Wasn't he kind of, he was sort of the washed out oh, lawyer. Yeah. That was like verdict, 81, so. I believe, yeah. Yeah, so. <clears throat> You're getting absence of malice, the verdict, Paul Newman, yeah. Yeah, I guess in the original film, too, he doesn't really, uh, Rick Deckard doesn't really speak. We're sticking on talking about Deckard here for a second. Doesn't even speak for the last 20 minutes of the movie. Now, I watched today to see if the final cut that's obviously changed. He comes back, he talks to Rachel a bunch. But the biggest fact that, Dave, you, you may have the floor, is that Harrison Ford has said he's a detective who doesn't do any detecting. <laughs> that's right. Fact or fiction? Dave, you you have the floor. Yeah, so uh, that is the quote that I have heard that Harrison Ford. Now, I, I, a little bit of background is it sounded like he had a terrible experience on this movie. Yeah. So what? and a lot of people did. This was a, one of those movies that I think it was just a tough birth. You know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And uh, I they, think only a bad time could be had on this set. Yeah, yeah, and yet, yeah, for it to come out as beautifully as it did. But yes, he did seem to say. Well, that's why everyone had to have had a terrible time on this set. Everything is so fussed with that no, no frame doesn't have 150 things. How many dolls would you like in J.F. Sebastian's yeah. place? Yeah. Ah, I'm thinking 120. What do you guys think? We were thinking 12. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like when, when Pris fell into the garbage, I was like, that is the most fussed with garbage in Hollywood history like Ridley must have spent hours like put this here put that yeah it is his most Kubrick I think like we were saying I mean I it it is just so meticulous in in every detail and that aspect obviously it must have driven some people crazy but the but for Harrison Ford afterwards I guess the the quote that I had heard him say was that it is it's a detective movie where the lead doesn't do any detecting and you know that has always frustrated me because i can appreciate if he doesn't like the movie maybe he's never seen it you know there are actors that don't go back and watch their own work that's okay he's allowed to not like the work he was involved in but the problem is is he's wrong and i hate that part i would love to be able to sit down next to harrison ford and say to him look brother look if this is the only reason if this is the reason you don't like this movie i got great news for you you're gonna love this movie because rick Rick decker does a huge (laughs) amount of detecting in this movie he starts out as you know he doesn't want to do it he gets pulled in by bryant but then they go and they review the tape when holden gets shot then he goes to leon's apartment or it goes Terrell. Then he goes to Leon's apartment. He gets the thing out. He puts it in his evidence bag, which Uh, I don't have one of those. Literally an evidence bag. Literally an evidence bag that he carries with him. (laughs) The only people I know that carry evidence bags are detectives. But so, you know, and they did the the photograph and he follows up on this. And really, it is a plot motivation. It's maybe not the greatest detective movie of all time, but, you know, it's like Adam and I were talking about. I don't think it's trying to be the greatest detective movie of all time, but it is a solid detective movie. I mean, he moves the it moves forward one step to the next through his detecting and then as a result of where he's going then other things unfold and we learn more about him i think the the writers were interested in a detective movie uh i think certain members of the crew were interested in a detective movie but ridley scott was not i mean that was in the script 
and he was shooting the script and that's it for, for Ridley caring about that because it's just a pure, every frame is an absolute masterpiece. It's very deep I, in the sense that I think that the, you know, the, the underlying discussion of this is, you know, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human or not? Or what does it mean to be, to, to, to owe life, to be able to deserve to live and explore life? Uh, and so that part of it, I'm sure, put the hook in Ridley, right? That sounds more right. like his vibe. Absolutely. You know, and so I think he brought out, and thank goodness he did, that he, he emphasized that side of it because that that is what makes this movie. If you were to pull that out, if you were to extricate out the idea of the sort of the underlying philosophy of it, you wouldn't have a very good movie. Um, you would have a guy who just kind of goes from one thing to another and then he sort of solves a case, but he doesn't because, you know. You can't ride on being a detective movie. Right. It just so thick with theme i mean it's so thick with theme that at the end he he saves deckard's life with a hand yeah. with a, you know a hand with a nail in it and then dies and lets a and lets a dove go it's like, is, that enough, is that enough symbolism uh ridley That's no true. put an entire factory behind him can we get an entire factory behind him <laughs> so it's him at his most kubrick and his most bergman with a little bit of John Woo Dove in there. There yeah. you go, John Woo Dove. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's go back to the source of this story then, because it's based on the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And Scorsese was interested in the film, but he never optioned it. it the story was first optioned by Herb Jaffe, and his son did an adaptation. So uh, Philip Dick flew to meet Herb and said, just getting off the plane, shall I beat you up here at the airport or shall I beat you up back at my apartment? (laughs) Clearly unhappy with the translation from book to script. And he also had problems with Hampton Fancher's adaptation. Uh, This is Philip Dick you're talking about, Philip Dick. PKD. Yeah. (laughs) PKD. (laughs) And he was concerned people weren't communicating with him about the production as well as writers, I would imagine, do the think it's away from him. They don't hear from anybody oh, for a God. while. But he eventually seemed to enjoy David Webb Peoples' version of the script because the Fancher and Peoples are both listed as screenwriters, but one kind of started. Fancher, Peoples took over. Fancher came in again later and added some more stuff. PKD saw a 20-minute VFX reel from the studio and said, quote, it was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly. And wow. then again, he died before the film was realized. Uh-huh. Um but he still said he's not going to do a novelization because they asked him. And he's like, there's already a book. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. so absurd. That, is, that's an, that takes balls to ask him that question. Are you going to do a novelization? It's based on my story. <laughs> what, a, what, a way to, what, what a perfect way to admit that we didn't really adapt a lot of your book. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to write an adaptation of the movie based on your book? Because we screwed it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then it, this led to a whole series of films based on his work that he never got to see, unfortunately, totally. Recall was based on We Can Remember oh. It For You Wholesale, Minority Report, The Adjustment Bureau, A Scanner Darkly, uh, and then Next, at Bernie's. the great Next movie, and of course Paycheck, which is the greatest title in the history of, oh. of movies, because clearly that's why the movie was made. <laughs> now, just so. based on the name of the movie Paycheck, I guarantee that was offered to Burt Reynolds at some point. Doesn't that sound like a, a, a Burt Reynolds movie? <laughs> it does sound like yeah. a Burt Reynolds movie. <laughs> Uh, and the other thing interesting about Philip K. Dick is when I saw his name today, I'm, I'm on the other side now of having seen and interviewed the director of a movie called A Glitch in the Matrix, a documentary that came out recently that explores, are we in fact in a matrix in real life? And this whole theory was first 
posited by Philip K. Dick. Yeah, for sure. Very influential in that sense. I mean, I know a lot of, not just the movies that were made on his work, but I know a lot of other people cited him as being a real influence. Yeah. And Ridley Scott came aboard when, and I didn't know this, when he um, abandoned a slow-moving production of Dune that never got going. How about that? How many people almost directed Dune? (laughs) (laughs) And then he talked about the uh, relationship. uh, Let's talk. Let me do a quote here from Ford. Blade Runner is not Blade Runner is not one of my favorite films. (laughs) I tangled with Ridley Uh, and he disliked the voiceovers. He said he he disliked doing them for uh, the people that did not represent the director's interests. I was obliged to work for these clowns that came in writing one bad voiceover after another. Oh, God. Yes, that had to be just punch up writers or whoever. Okay, so a work print was made. When you make a film, you make a work print that's not completed, but it's shown to people, and so they showed it to people in a couple places, got feedback that the uh, producers didn't care for. So the producers, uh, at this point, already had fired Ridley Scott and the film's producer for coming in over budget. So then they were obliged to do whatever they wanted to do with the movie. That's when they added the voiceover and the happy ending and Uh eliminated some scenes that uh, later were brought back into the film. So completely without Ridley, that that just, you know. Yeah. They they no longer had to argue over, because he wins a lot of fights, you could tell. Yeah. You could tell a movie like this, nothing, I've said this before on some movies that are overly lush like this, like nothing in this movie was the producer's first choice. Yeah. So everybody's George Lucas is what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) The work print eventually was released as the director's cut, but Ridley didn't approve of it. So that's not the director's cut. And so then Scott came in and did put his final stamp on it. And what we have the final cut in 2007. So that's the journey to what we have now, which is what we watched tonight. The other ones I think are interesting to watch just for historical perspective. It's like, oh, that is what it was like when I first saw it. Oh, and here's how the special effects look when they're not you know, sort of cleaned up. And you know, and I, but I will say this, which I read uh, a quote by Christopher Nolan, who said that he has watched this movie hundreds of times, and it's but it was a huge influence on him. That's not a terrible surprise, right? I mean, you can certainly see some influence there. But he claims he believes that the voiceover, the original. Uh, director's cut is the definitive uh, Blade Runner. So from his perspective, he doesn't think it detracts that much. He thinks it adds to the story and, you know, it's kind of the original. Now, it sounds like it was also the one he fell in love with. <laughs> so it, there might be some of that, you know, it's kind of the first version of a song you hear and then you hear another version. But, uh, you know, for whatever it's worth, Christopher Nolan believes it's it's the definitive. It, without the voiceover, it doesn't feel, no matter how much detecting he does, it doesn't feel as much like a detective movie because that was a trope. And, and this this hits all the tropes of noir, but very obliquely. Like uh, Ridley's not going to give you anything on a platter. Like I even realized tonight that Vangelis' score sounds like that sort of saxophone that you would hear as they walk down the rainy street, always rainy in the in the uh, noir. But Ridley doesn't want to give gives that gives that all very obliquely in the form of basically a European art film, an impenetrable you know exercise in uh, 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 what is life. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. most people are like, and then and then the ships go pew 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 pew, pew and really goes, yeah, and then we we ponder what life is. Because what is love? What is life? Right? Yeah, the, the but the voiceover is the de- detective one. You know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, his from what I remember, his voice isn't 
it, it's not as much, I ought to kill you right now. It's more, we're not going to Delhi, doll. We're going to Pankot <laughs> Palace. Yeah. So, <laughs> Good differentiation. Good differentiation. <laughs> yeah, the latter is... The latter is a little put on, I think. So I never, as much as I love Harrison Ford, I was never the hugest fan of that voiceover. I think it's, I think part of it too, though, is, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think Harrison Ford's heart probably just sank when he found out they were going to be doing this, narr- you know, this narration. He's going to do the voiceover and he gets it and he's reading it. And from his perspective, it's just, you know, he doesn't think it's good. This guy, I know he told, he tells the story that he showed up into, the, they were going to do some kind of audio work, a redub or something like that. And he was there and he walked into the room where the guy was typing up the 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 actual uh script or the uh what what the voiceover was going to be and harrison ford said oh well, hi i you know heard you're here and i just want to introduce myself and the guy just shooed him away and just said go go leave i only you know i'm under a deadline or whatever and and you know harrison's saying well this guy's completely disconnected to the process right so whatever came out of that i think and i think it sort of shows i think that the that the voiceover work that he does not that he phones it in but just that i think in this case i don't yeah. think his art was in it and you can sort of hear that you know it's enough of a disconnect that it shows because his performance in this movie i think is some of the best acting of his career i really love it i think it's got a huge arc we see this character go through a lot and he shows it he gives us that ride but then you know to tack on it really feels very bolted on i guess you know now because again, this is this is a Euro, like a totally shot like a European art film. Like like it's all it's a, all a lot of symbolism. It's all beauty shots. Also, I mean, it'd be the equivalent of taking like yeah, like Zabriskie Point or some sort of like art film like that, and then putting so so then we walked down the road and then we didn't quite understand what was going on. You're like, <laughs> yeah. what are you doing? This movie was not shot to support that. Yeah, that's because <laughs> you watched the version we watched tonight, and it's like. Lots of silence and glances and looks and, you know, and, and I love at the beginning when he kicks open the door to uh, M.M. at Walsh, M.M. at Walsh sighting also bonus points for this movie, right? You can't go wrong with a little M.M. at Walsh, but he kicks that door open. And if I just heard him gibbering and jabbering for the last minute, and I forget when the voiceover is, but I think it's like before and during that scene as, so I went down to the office to talk to the guy and, you know, yeah. but in this version you get, him quietly sitting on the street in that gorgeous, my new favorite shot, the one with him in front of the t- uh, t- all the TVs. How many TVs you want, Ridley? I don't know, 10, 12? I'm thinking 60? It's just we're, we're getting into this person just through looks and atmosphere and everything. And I have a feeling when I go back to the other one, it's going to be like, so I was sitting there reading the paper, and then I got some yeah. Chinese food. and then this It's guy- Frank Drebin, right? It's Police Squad. Well, you know, I arrived at the apartment at five o'clock in the afternoon. All right, so we need to drop some names here and give them some love. Production designer Lawrence G. Paul. Oh God, yeah. Because that place the, looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, he and I should also mention art designer Sid Mead. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, M- M- a Metropolis, Edward Hopper paintings, and a magazine called Metal Hurlant, <laughs> which is. I was a subscriber, but I, not everybody was. So, Paul, you should probably tell them what that is. <laughs> oh, it just Dave knows, but for everybody else, it's uh, it's heavy metal. It's the magazine Heavy Metal, oh, but, yes. but in France. In France, yeah, it's in <laughs> right. France, yeah. 
because of course that's what Ridley Scott, the, the French heavy metal, you know, can't listen to. He wasn't going to say Mad, even if it was Mad Magazine, he would have never have said it. He had to, it <laughs> Le Mad. Some French, yeah, <laughs> Le Mad. Married Magazine. Le Upset. <laughs> Your cinematographer, Jordan Cronenweth. And Cronenweth, yeah. and we looked him up during the film because we were like, I must have worked on this and that. Right. He shot a bunch of comedies and this. Yeah. He shot Best Friends with Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn. Is that what oh it's called? God. No, Just Friends. Best, no, Best Friends. What is it? And he shot The Best of Times with uh, Robin Williams. and <laughs> Final Analysis with Richard Gere and Kim Basinger. Nothing big. And then in the middle of it all, we got... Uh, you know, yeah, we get Blade this Runner. Gem. This is crazy. <laughs> I mean, this is like the best photography of all time. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm just shocked he didn't continue to just shoot, you know, uh, yeah. Fellini films or something. Yeah, for sure. And of course, in the original production with the happy ending, they're flying away from the city, and those shots were unused footage from The Shining. Mm. Right. I remember hearing yeah, that. So Kubrick has a hand in this after all. Uh, Kubrick still rears his head in there. For sure. And the last person to mention, of course, rest in peace, Douglas Trumbull, special effects legend yeah. who started in two thousand, who started in two thousand one, uh, and then of course Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, right on through directing, Brainstorm, and Silent yeah. Running. Adam pointed out that there's this shot, I mean, even right from the beginning, right? There's such a, a Douglas Trumbull shot where the when you see the, one of these, you know, these pod carriers or whatever they're called in the movie, the spinners, the spinners, spinners, when they're uh, flying around with that flare, you oh. know, the, the lens flare and everything. That's just that's great. That's a full-on Close Encounters uh, yeah. lens flare. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> you were talking about. Why this movie was made, uh, Adam? During yeah. you're like, is this movie? He must have hated himself to make this movie. <laughs> well, uh, it was kind of just the opposite. Uh, the, the history is that Ridley Scott made the film right after his brother died, and he liked the idea of exploring pain. So oh, that's wow. what uh, launched him into this. Wow! And it's wow. It, it, the film is dedicated to Philip Dick because he died as well. But I think if you look in there, there's also a dedication to Ridley's brother. That's interesting. I wonder if that informed any of his, you know, the kind of more religious choices, right? The, the, the what is the stigmata oh, sort of right. sign, right? That Roy Batty when he drives the, the nail through his hand. And, you know, I, I wonder if Ridley Scott was just going through that kind of a thing, too. Yeah, because all that such artsy stuff that happens, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and the meditations on what it is to be alive and what are memories and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. It's like, I, I just, it, you know, that. At some point in the production process, somebody's got to go, hey, and maybe this should be about why are we alive? And that's got to be Ridley. You yeah, know, right. that's just not going to be anybody else. <laughs> that's good. So in the end, uh, what is the movie's legacy? Well, uh, nominated for two Oscars. Guess which ones? Sound and sound editing. Oh, no, actually, uh, art direction and visual effects. Oh, that's great. Okay. But yours right. are just as valid. That's the thing. They're going to be two tech things. Yeah. Uh, and they lost to Gandhi and E.T., respectively. Oh, so. Never heard of them. <laughs> Gandhi, what did he ever do? He's no replicate. Come on. Are there any meditations on what it's like to be alive in his movie? Yeah, you see? Well, I guess it is. All right, I guess. All right, maybe Gandhi. There was a, a you know, Ridley Scott-esque number of extras though so in how many do you want uh 20 30 well, i'm thinking eight thousand yeah fifty thousand <laughs> 93 it's selected into the u.s national film registry by the library of congress for being culturally historically and aesthetically significant the visual effects society called it the second most visually influential film of all time behind metropolis 
Star Wars. Oh, Star Wars. Hey, good for them. All right. That is great, though. I, I did not know that, that they uh, that it was so... I mean, I I've obviously always highly regard it, and so does everybody who sees it. You're just so struck by the visuals, but it's great to know that they got some love for it, too. Harrison Ford, one visually interesting man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> He's even visually interesting. Empire Magazine put it in the number 20 of the greatest movies of all time, The Guardians. It's the top sci-fi film on their list, sci-fi film on their list. Right. Time Magazine's top 100 all time. Uh, yeah, so it didn't play big. It only earned $41.6 million after a $30 million budget, uh, which is way less than Star Wars and Raiders. But due to VHS rentals, this was one of the first films to come out on DVD. A lot of people said maybe a close proximity to Star Trek II and the thing and E.T. didn't help it because sci-fi was kind of overwhelming already that summer. Oh, yeah, but this is, but this is sci-fi summer. This is the, the most famous aftermath of Star Wars because you got Star Trek, Blade Runner, E.T., Tron. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's really an interesting question. I mean, there's, I'm sure there are people that have speculated on why it is that it didn't do particularly well in the box office, but I'm not surprised at all to find out that years later that it's been appreciated in that sense. I think, you know, the more time that goes by, too, the more that there's that overwhelming sense of, my God, you just don't ever see a movie that doesn't get dated. I mean, I, you know, that movie, right. 40 years old, 40? Is that really possible? I mean, you know, it just doesn't seem right because it's so visually stunning and the, the use of models... Well, to think about it, if you watched Blade Runner, then you said, hey, let's watch a movie from 40 years ago. It'd be some 1942 sci-fi movie with guys in costumes in a moon set. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. That's a great point when you put it like that. Of course, we have the Vangelis score and the interesting fact after the movie came out, the soundtrack didn't arrive for like 12 years. Uh, It just never came out. There were delays and then there were bootlegs. So they never put out the official. And finally, like in 2007, when the final cut came out, they put out a three CD compilation with the original soundtrack, unreleased tracks and brand new music inspired by the movie by Vangelis smoking and playing. I don't know if you've ever seen his Chariots of Fire video. The guy smokes like crazy. It's hilarious. (laughs) But anyway. uh, But what a dedicated mismanagement of the talent. He uh, had won an Oscar for Chariots of Fire. We got Vangelis. The big what, did that have an album, or maybe there was no musical component to that in terms of making money. It just won an Oscar for it. But like, why wouldn't you go Vangelis? We got the guy that everybody's been humming the theme to for the last two years. Yeah, you know, and here's the album. Here's yeah. Vangelis, the guy that everybody's been talking about for Chariots of Fire. I mean, really? They, it's they literally don't the year before. Do a soundtrack yeah. for eighteen years. Yeah. Yeah, I guess because you can't tap your foot to it in the same way that you, <laughs> well, yeah. that you can to that Chariots of Fire song. I mean, <laughs> damn, that's catchy. The, the reality is, is that the, the, it's music as atmosphere also, right. right? It's not just music, meaning here I'm going to fill it with notes. Yes. It's tones, right? It's chords. Yeah. Sometimes it seems, you know, I mean, they're just sort of out of place. And then he uses, you know, sometimes it's Asian music. Sometimes oh, it's yeah. sort of futuristic. Sometimes to your point, it's jazzy, you know, yeah. new age or whatever. I mean, the guy just, it's incredible. But all done with the futuristic instrumentation so that you feel like you're in the future. Yeah. But again, a movie that defies you to like it. If you're going in for a Star Wars feel, this ain't John Williams. Right. And, you know, I'm, I, and I often, you know, would criticize movies for having sort of more asynchronic scores rather than have like a classic John Williams hummable tap your feet to it. Yeah. So, you know, this one, 
is somewhat, you know, impenetrable in that way. However, it fits this movie like nothing else. Yeah. Like, how do you score this impenetrable movie that's yeah. <laughs> masquerading as a mass entertainment? <laughs> I don't know. Somehow it feels really organic, even though you know yeah. it's like it's so different in each scene. But I think part of that is probably the reason that the that the soundtrack they probably listened to it and they're like, well, no one's going to want to sit around listening to atmospheric, you know, future sound of London kind of you know ambiance thing, you know. But I it's it's great and it, you know. Yeah, it really adds a lot. Yeah, for me, it was kind of, I mean, it's a great score, but it was kind of like porn. It's all fun and games till the sax comes in. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then so other uh, post, per, post-release post facts back in when they did the final cut, Joanna Cassidy had this curse on top of her in that it was clearly her stunt double in Blade Runner. And yes. people were pointing that out all the time. Very she bewigged. was running through the, the, the sheets of glass. So she put on the same sort of outfit and they did face replacement technology to clean up those shots. And she was thrilled that she could fit in that costume again. Yeah. <laughs> Good for her. Oh, is it like 25 years later? Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, she was fit in that movie. She's supposed to be the, you know, she's the, the crack, you know, assassin killer or whatever. So she's very lean. And I noticed how cool Harrison Ford was with the snake. A little fact I learned about that was that snake that Joanna Cassidy had was her own snake, a python named Darling. So, yeah, and then Harrison, I mean, so I get why she was cool with it, but Harrison Ford's sitting right there. She puts it on a, like a coat rack and he's right next to it. I'd be still a little wigged out that there's a snake right there. He handles <laughs> it pretty cool. His chin. You know? Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. maybe maybe that's to make a reference to the previous movie he did. It's like, oh, he's friendly with the snake in this one, almost as a reference in a weird way. Oh, like, that's oh, funny. I like snakes. I, I didn't think about that. That's a funny <laughs> I idea. I didn't think about that till just now either. <laughs> and of course, Rutger Hauer uh, died the same year Roy Batty did, 2019. What? So oh. there's that. <laughs> wow. Man, what a performance by him, right? I mean, oh, everything God. is everything is clocking in this movie. If, again, fitting, not not making audiences going to it, hoping for Indiana Jones happy, but just clocking its own thing. Like his performance in this uh, is just such a, uh, it's so like visceral and everything is, it's yeah. those long pauses. Yeah. And the, it's, it's, you know, it's really he goes full Montalban. I remember I, we, I saw <laughs> Star Trek two in a theater and I hadn't seen that in a theater in forever. And the con performance, why are you here? <laughs> you know, he's got that whole con thing going on. He yeah. is something in this movie. He is. And, you know, it's it's quite a uh, it, it's quite a thing that he has to do where he needs to convince you that he is sort of superhuman. Right. So this this guy, it's he is supposed to be brighter than a human. He's stronger than a human. He's more strategic in thinking and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think Rutger Hauer, it shows on his face even. I mean, yeah. he just, I don't know how he does it, but it just, it, there's a way that he carries himself in this performance that they didn't have to do any kind of particular makeup for this. I mean, it's really lean, yeah. you know, uh, but the a fact that he's able to pull off, you look at him and go, yeah, that's what a Nexus 6 would look like. Uh-huh. Sure. That's yeah. the next generation of replicant. Yeah. Like a, like a big evil sting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big evil David Bowie. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, hundred percent. That's a star man. That's that's who would come to kill me. A big evil David Bowie. <laughs> evil David Bowie. Well, Philip K. Dick agreed, calling him uh, the perfect baddie, cold, Aryan, 
flawless. Ah, so there yeah. you go. Flawless. Yeah. yeah, I caught the Aryan thing. Him and Pris were blonde, but I don't think Leon was. But Leon might not have been a part of their convoy. He might have been separate the whole time, I think, right? I'm not sure. They, they, the story seems to set it up that they all seem to rebel at the same time. Yeah. That they were all, and they all jump ship jump or ship. whatever. But yeah, it's difficult to know whether they were all part of the same crew or not. For sure, Roy Batty and Prisco together, they seem to be a couple. But. I love how they were different models. And I was just noticing that this time that when Pris needs a place to stay, and she meets Sebastian and she doesn't know how to interact. You know, they, what's so cool is each of them has these moments where they, run out of being able to communicate with people We're running. They run out of, you know, being able to act human. Yeah. Like, and that's good. what the Voight Kampf test does is, you know, it, yeah, it, at some it, point. Yeah. Yeah. You see his eyes when they mentioned the tortoise thing and it's like, Oh, he's one of them. And, and the boiled dog with, uh, uh, the yeah, Sean Rachel. Young, yeah. Rachel, you know, you're like, Oh, she's one of them. Um, but the way she turns on the, charm with him it's just so robotic yeah like to go back to his place because she that's what she does she's a pleasure model and same thing with roy batty like everything is like purely calculating con because he's the battle model or whatever it's yeah it's a lot of personality packed into you know kind of again an impenetrable characters you know they're robots you know yeah 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 and two last things i know we're gonna wrap this up but i'll say the blade runner curse was a thing for a while because all the companies you see advertising in the world of Blade Runner right. uh, eventually tanked. Right. <laughs> TDK. Uh, except for Coca-Cola, but I'll tell you about that. You had RCA, gone. Atari, Atari. gone. Cuisinart survived but had a bankruptcy. And then <laughs> okay. a new company took them over. Uh, Bell Telephone Company, Pan Am. Um, and Coca-Cola survived, but after Blade Runner, they gave us a new Coke. So it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> so they were on life support for a little while at least but they did yeah. bounce back and, and also a lot of people don't see uh, but uh, pay close attention in television and aids diet uh, aid from uh oh is that true <laughs> no no, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> teddy yeah, ruxpin man. was in there somewhere. teddy ruxpin <laughs> that's great teddy ruxpin <laughs> Uh, and the last thing I found pretty interesting, you ever see the film Soldier with Kurt Russell? No, I never no, have. I never have. Oh, okay. Well, now you want to check it out because it was written by David Peoples. You're who right. Came aboard this script. And he called it a sidequel to Blade Runner. And I saw this film. And one of the things I remember most about it is they just kind of scrap these robot soldiers, put them in a big robot scrapyard. And then a big crane will come in and pull them out if they want to use them again or somehow he gets saved. And there's a... a a scene in that film that he planned to open Blade Runner with, with like a just big robot scrapyard and mm. that they get, that they come out of perhaps rebel or who knows what. Oh, uh, wow. And a bonus. Oh, oh, and there's a Tan Hauser gate reference. If you remember oh. Tan Hauser gates, one of the places Batty references yeah. about the things he's seen. Oh, um, there's some war at Tan Hauser gate mentioned in soldiers. So I think people's was like, ah, it's kind of in that world. He like wanted to go back and kind of live in that world again, which I get. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. I'd like to see that. That does sound dramatic. I think, you know, there's a lot of that, that exploration in this movie of the, you know, the building of machines in order to make our lives better, but that the dehumanizing process that happens in that, right? We lose ourselves, it seems. And we also, it seems we have no value for anything that we create. So even these beautiful, you know, 
you know, robots, if you will, or androids, which are, you know, obviously, you know, well-designed, genetically designed, whatever, even them, get rid of them, kill them. You know, they're worth nothing. Yeah. That dehumanizing process. Yeah, I, mean, I think, it, you know, the, the, the movie plays on that. They make a big deal. And again, it's a part of the noir thing of like, uh, you know, you're a killer, Deckard. Deckard's a killer. Oh, he's stacked up the bodies. In fact, it's almost a parody because he doesn't come off as the grizzled killer of Unforgiven, you know, the way he's being told as. And so it's almost funny, like the first three times M.M. Walsh comes in, he comes and tells some story about, oh my God, he stacked the bodies so high. Oh, this guy right here, hey, kill your mother. Like, every day he comes <laughs> yeah. in, like, all right, chill out. Like, I'm not buying it really from this guy. But then when he does kill a replicant for the first time, uh, you know, and he gets the shakes and the, he's like, got to go get booze and all that stuff. Like, you realize, like, man, there's a lot of emphasis on what death means already at that point. But, of course, mm -hmm. that builds and builds mm -hmm. and builds. But, yeah, that's just, uh, that's interesting that they just talk about him being such a killer and all this stuff. And and then they do make such a big deal out of killing, taking lives. What is life? Yeah. It's it's kind of an amazing thing. And it sneaks up on you in this movie. I think it does. Because yeah, it I plays do. by the noir rules for about the first didn't we mark where it kind of just starts to divert? I mean, basically like the unicorn thing mm -hmm. when he, when he sits down and plays that that's like the first time in this movie where it maybe, maybe one of the first scenes where it stops playing noir for a second. And then it's like, he taps a couple notes on the piano and a unicorn shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> you know I mean? I'm just like, uh, what? Like that's insane. And, and then from the, here on out, the movie stops playing by, any other rules. I think it, it, it starts not being afraid to be a meditation on this or that, or, or, or be, or just have a scene full of longing glances and no dialogue, you know? Yeah. Well, and it, it you know, to your point, I, when he and Rachel, the first time that they re have a real conversation is back in his apartment she follows him there, right? And she, because she wants to prove to him she's human. Yeah. So she takes out her photograph, talks about the, you know, whatever, these memories oh or whatever. And then he shatters her oh with this God. reality that you were basically made three years ago or four years ago. And all of these are memory implants, just ripping the soul out of yeah. a person right in front of their eyes. So from a film noir perspective too, right? Okay, yeah, you know, you can always have the, yeah, she was a dame and I didn't want her in my life. But you don't have tearing out out of soul usually but the you know between the two you know the the female yeah. the femme fatale and the and the you know the detective but in this movie their first relationship it, it, he doesn't want anything to do with her she's a machine yeah. and this happens well and, and talk about breaking your heart but doing it futuristic style telling her that she's a robot and revealing to her that all your memories are lies yeah now go home is that cool? You gonna yeah, have a good night? Yeah, we you know good. I mean? like, we good. I mean, you know, talk about like breaking her heart, really, and that is being the grizzled detective. Let me give you some hard truth, sister. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically, you know, yeah. like get us, so get out of here, hit the streets. You yeah. know, yeah, that's it's a really interesting, but it doesn't again doesn't play if you're going in for the detective stuff. It's not going to play it any way that you think it is. You yeah. know, it's, it doesn't it's, play it straight. It no, yeah. no. So he's hard boiled. He's uh, heroic, but how does uh, how does this performance stand in the list of Harrison Ford essentials? Okay, uh, is there righteous anger? No, not really. No, he's, he's too, real chill he's in too, this. Too low key. Yeah, yeah. Does he point, Adam? Did did the pointometer measure anything? Today? Zero points. Mm. Uh, 
but a shout in the street, which he was pointing his gun, but I don't count that as a point. That's not really Harrison Ford point. But it was like, get out of the no, way, no, no, right? No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. 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 And then he shouts one time he screams in pain when he tries to put his dislocated finger back. Into, yes. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yes. And, and I have to count that because Fred Mowry loves when Harrison Ford uh, does those little uh, terse shouts of pain in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's plenty of those in, in Blade Runner. Those count as shouts. They yeah, count. So. And so then he has, uh, does he hit a guy? Yeah, uh, yes, yes, he does. He hits Leon. He hits Leon once. I think that's all we got, yeah. though, right? That was yeah, a great. I, I forgot how interesting that moment is, too, because Leon comes up and Leon's uh, pretty threatening. Yeah. And he asks him one question. Harrison Ford immediately is like, You're not here for any good conversation. <laughs> and he immediately takes the chance to punch him and nothing happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. So we'll add that to the total. That means in these uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 movies so far, nine punches. So uh, taking a different turn that this character does, how Harrison Ford is he in this by percentage? Not very. I don't think so either. I, yeah, I think, I, you know, if he's the most Harrison Ford in Raiders, let's say, then, then no, I don't think that this one, this is definitely on the other end. I mean, it's maybe not regarding Henry, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, he's a he. Well, he's a hero because he is a detective guy, supposedly stopping crimes. I mean, they they throw that. It's a it's an alt version of all that. So I mean, they're throwing that all into question, but it's playing that game and casting him in that role. So I mean, he is like a, another classic type of character out of fiction. Yeah. But you know? the swagger's gone. I, swagger's gone. He, you know, and that part of it, I think the, the Harrison Ford swagger is, is a big yeah. part of him. And, and I think they really, you know, he's, he's, he's down and out in this yeah. one. He's washed up. He's an alcoholic and he's, you know, uh, and he doesn't even like what he does. So even if he is good at it, he hates it. Yeah. That's not like Indiana Jones where no. he's good at it and he loves it. Yeah. It's his whole life. So that, yeah, did it, did it with Han Solo. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it knocked me down to 40%. Then I was going to maybe that low. It might be 40. Yeah. I mean, because I, yeah. I know we, we have, I mean. But this is proof you can be a low percentage of Harrison Ford and still be great. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? Yeah, it's not a knock. I mean, he's not super Harrison Ford in it, but it, that's that, I'm glad. It, 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 I know. mean, how Ridley Scott is this movie versus how Harrison <laughs> Ford is this movie? Right. It's exactly. 100% Ridley Scott. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're going to get about an extra, there's about an extra 10 or 20% of, of Ridley Scott, and that's going to eat up some Harrison Ford. That's true. That's going to eat up some M.M. at Walsh. That's going to eat up That's going to eat up everybody. Some Joe you know? Turkle. Yeah. <laughs> how Joe Turkle is this movie? Less than it could be. Yes. <laughs> 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 all right well let's uh, end with final thoughts mine will be another fun fact because i pulled a bunch of them if you go to the prometheus blu-ray adam i'm sure okay. you do that routinely uh there's a bonus feature on there that suggests eldon tyrell was the mentor for peter wayland <gasps> the wayland yutani corporation so there you go <laughs> tying it all together alien and blade runner Oh, That's pretty good. Nice. Building new worlds. Off-world colonies. <laughs> off-world <laughs> colonies. Are they trying to build an alien? Oh, boy. Oh, uh, there it is. An off-world colony. That's an interesting idea. Uh-huh. <clears throat> oh, I think we've tied well, it together. I think I will have, if I can have my last thought, my last thought is this. 
Harrison, if you're out there, buddy, if by some chance, by some miracle, you get to hear this, watch this movie again. You're going (laughs) to like it. It's really, really good, and you're great in it. And everybody else that's in it is also really great. So I hope you learn to love it as much as I do, because it deserves it. I mean, you can say you don't do much detecting, but this movie doesn't need much detecting. <laughs> it's it's only a little bit about detecting. That's right. It's, it's it's playing the game to play the game, and then turning into a European art film. Yeah, because and then it's, then it's really the Scott Seventh movie. Seal after. Yeah, that. right. Exactly. <laughs> then it's a Michelangelo Antonioni movie, daring you to like it afterwards. Final thoughts, Adam. So every time they go over to JF Sebastian's house, they uh, it is filled with nightmares it is filled with mannequins and dolls and weird things that stare and turn and jiggle and gyrate and you're just like and of course it's you know blade runner so how many you want ridley i'm thinking 84 (laughs) we were thinking maybe nine or ten uh but but it's a room full of nightmares it's just a scary collection of you know weird burn baby dolls and things and when there's the attack at the end it turns into like full haunted house. Like that's like a very haunted. So, so it's just interesting. This movie takes its influence here and there, but during that sequence, like it's clearly like a haunted house. Like when Pris gets shot, he holds on her gyrating for a long yeah, time. Yeah. It's almost and alien screaming. at that point, right? That's he's, right. he's still kind of pulling from alien. Yeah. So it was just like the haunted house aspect of this end. And yeah, as bad, he's chasing him through the house and running through walls and suddenly and he can be everywhere. He's a ghost. You know, suddenly he's above you. Ha ha. And he's saying things like, ah, oh, one, two, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's doing all the Dracula <laughs> stuff. And it just, it was just so interesting how that became the haunted sucked, house movie at the sucked end. Sucked blood. Did I miss it? <laughs> yeah, that's true though. You're right. Of all, I mean, it, 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 this movie covers a tremendous amount of real estate. But of course, Blade Runner can only make Blade Runner choices. I mean, it's when you make a movie, as confidently as he did this, all of its choices are its choices and only its choices, you know? So I was just watching that and I'm like, is Haunted House a good idea? But I also think Ridley's a guy that doesn't want a scene to have no influence or nothing. He doesn't want to have a scene just be a scene. So it's like, you got to drive in some direction, you know, like, which gives all the major thematic stuff, like all the, you know, what is it to be alive and the, the religious connotations and all that stuff. So it's just, I think it's another thing of like, well, it's just a chase through a house if I don't add more to it. So let's make it a nightmare. Yeah. Okay, well, all right. <laughs> Can we get, uh, how many nightmares you want, Ridley? I'm thinking 80, <laughs> 90 maybe, maybe 100. <laughs> and filled with smoke and set things on fire and raining. Is that cool? Yeah. No, more Diffused rain. Diffused light through the, uh, through the Venetian blinds. Yeah, maybe we yeah. kind of can't see anything. Is that cool? Does that work for you guys? Does it work for drive-ins? Sure, Ridley. <laughs> like, he, he won every argument on this movie, except for the final one, <laughs> for the first release. <laughs> All right, and that is Blade Runner, and it really isn't. This is an unfinished conversation. You could go on forever about this movie. And so, uh, but we are glad to have Dave Sachs with us to talk about it. Thanks, everybody. What a pleasure. What a treat. Of course, you can find all of our old shows, Movie Guys interviews, the old showcast, old appearances of Dave Sachs at themovieguys.net as well. And you can tour movie locations in Los Angeles at the Movie Guys LA Film Locations Tour. Just go to LAFilmLocationsTour.com. You know, and soon I want want this to take off so I can expand to downtown so I can include the Bradbury building and I can include uh, the 2nd Street 
tunnel where those couple of shots in a tunnel took place in the film as well. But uh, for now, is uh, yeah, the, those are downtown. Not quite going downtown yet, but um, when I do, oh, that Ghostbusters is going to be a whole lot added to the downtown tour. But go to LA Film Locations. Uh, you, you know, I got to get Tech Noir on that tour of yours, Paul. You got a what? You uh, when you go downtown, the alley where Kyle Reese arrived and Tech Noir. <laughs> Are my requests. <laughs> yes. So that wraps Blade Runner. Join us next week when we talk about Blade Runner 2049. Uh, Paul, that doesn't come out for 35 more years. Oh, then our podcast about it will probably come out in 35 years as well, the way we're going. All right. Thanks, hey, I'm everybody. Trying. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs>